Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. We are winding down here with our series on the rise and fall of Elizabeth Holmes and her Silicon Valley startup, Theranos. I want to say a few things about this podcast before we get started. This is an independent ad-free show, which means I rely on the help of the listeners to continue creating content. And I know you're probably wondering how you can help. Well, you can leave the show a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to your shows on. That helps drive the show up the charts. It gets us more visibility. I do get people who tell me that they found California Dreaming while searching for new shows on their apps. So somewhere out there in the algorithmy universe, people have actually found us. You can like the show on Facebook. You can leave a review there too. You can join the discussion group also on Facebook and follow the show on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. You can recommend the show in true crime discussion and fan groups. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can become a member of Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, your membership will unlock dozens of full-length exclusive bonuses that you won't hear anywhere else. There are some one-and-done episodes as well as some multi-parters. It's definitely not as intense as what we've been going through here with Theranos. This is unlike anything I've ever done before. I guess I could have just put out a separate podcast, but that's just too many podcasts. There are countless hours of content on Patreon, and every patron gets bonus content every month, not just the 5 or $10 tiers. Unless you, for some reason, customize your membership for less than a dollar a month, then no, you don't get anything. And this week, I would like to thank Jennifer L., Chuck, Laura G., Tiffany C., Kiki B., Alyssa, Vicki C., April G., Brenda L., Stephanie G., Cecilia F., Kimberly P., Fanny F., Lisa B., Kathy M., and Melissa D. for either joining Patreon, raising your pledge, or going annual. And if a monthly subscription just isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation to the treat jar. I guess maybe that's a good thing we'll call it, kind of like the garage guys say, the beer fund. This will be the treat jar. You can do so through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. Without further ado, let's get to this dozenth part of A Girl Boss and the Silicon Valley of Lies. The sources of this episode include the book by Wall Street journalist John Carreyrou called Bad Blood as well as articles and documents about this case that can be found online. Everything will be cited in the show and in the show notes as needed. All right, let's get to it. So to recap the last part of the series, well, first let me apologize. When I recorded those two episodes, I was kind of tired and I could tell that I was talking kind of fast and I said some wrong words. I don't usually listen back, but this time I did because I just knew like I wasn't in the right headspace, but I think I did okay. I usually don't record two episodes in two days, but I was behind like I always am. And I had all of this stuff written. I just hadn't been able to sit down and record. So in part 11, 
We saw Theranos' attorneys, as well as Sonny Balwani, put the screws to Tyler Schultz, Erica Chung, and a handful of individuals who they thought or discovered were speaking to Wall Street Journal investigative reporter John Carreyrou. While John vehemently denied that it was he who revealed the identity of his sources, Theranos' hench people came really close to getting some of them to crack under the pressure. A couple of doctors in Arizona were pressured by Sonny to recharacterize the things that they had said to John Carreyrou in statements that were much more favorable to Theranos instead. Those are people who spoke to John on the record, so their names were attached to the information that they had provided. But for the most part, John's sources held strong and stood by what they had said. John Carreyrou also tried for several weeks to get Elizabeth to meet with him face-to-face, or even on the phone, to get her to answer some tough questions that he had. But he was given a series of excuses why she couldn't meet with him, and when her public relations guy finally set something up for John, he ended up meeting with Theranos' number three executive, Daniel Young, along with an entourage of attorneys, including super attorney David Boyce. And I'm going to call him super attorney. I don't really like the term very much, but I've heard it thrown around. And I just want to be able to remind you of who he is and distinguish him from the other attorneys that Theranos has on its team. David Boyce is probably the biggest name and the most intimidating of them all. Now, John managed to get Daniel Young to concede to a couple of things, including the fact that Theranos had used third-party commercial blood analyzers to run their blood tests. But everything came with an excuse as to why these things were going on with the company. In the end, John got very little information, but he did get a lot of pressure to kill the story. Threats to sue if John published anything that revealed their trade secrets, and he was told that everything else that he had were untruths from the mouths of disgruntled former employees who all have a bone to pick with Theranos. Despite their best efforts, Theranos was unable to put a stop to John's article, and it went live for the world to see on October 15, 2015, in the Wall Street Journal. I called it P-Day, Publish Day, and we will pick up the story from there. The headline on the front page of the Wall Street Journal read, Apprised Startup Struggles, and John described the article as devastating. Then you needed to go to the front page of the business section to read all about it. It really is his story and investigation that finally got people taking a closer look at Theranos because what they were doing was clearly wrong and illegal. I did subscribe to the Wall Street Journal so I could access these articles, so I'm going to share some of the key points from John's article with you. The headline in the business section read, Hot Startup Theranos 
has struggled with its blood test technology. Below that, it read, Silicon Valley Lab, led by Elizabeth Holmes, is valued at $9 billion, but is it using its technology for all of the tests that it offers? Beneath the headline is a pic of Elizabeth with a caption that read, Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos founder, chairman, and I would have chosen to say chairwoman or chairperson, but John said chairman, and chief executive at the blood testing company's headquarters in Palo Alto, California. Her ownership stake in Theranos is valued at more than $4.5 billion. Then the article said, On Theranos Inc.'s website, the company founder, Elizabeth Holmes, holds up a tiny vial to show how the startup's breakthrough advancements have made it possible to quickly process the full range of laboratory tests from a few drops of blood. The company offers more than 240 tests ranging from cholesterol to cancer. It claims its technology can work with just a finger prick. Investors have poured more than $400 million into Theranos, valuing it at $9 billion, and her majority stake is more than half that. The 31-year-old Ms. Holmes's bold talk and black turtlenecks draw comparisons to Apple Inc. co-founder Steve Jobs. But Theranos has struggled behind the scenes to turn the excitement over its technology into reality. At the end of 2014, the lab instrument developed as the linchpin of its strategy handled just a small fraction of the tests then sold to customers, according to four former employees. One former senior employee says that Theranos was routinely using the device named the Edison after the prolific inventor for only 15 tests in December of 2014. And dreamers, that's just three months after launching into Walgreens. Some employees were leery about the machine's accuracy, according to former employees and emails reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. In a complaint to regulators, one Theranos employee accused the company of failing to report test results that raised questions about the precision of the Edison system. Such a failure could be a violation of federal rules for laboratories, the former employee said. Theranos also hasn't disclosed publicly that it does the vast majority of its tests with traditional machines bought from companies like Siemens. The Palo Alto company says it abides by all applicable federal lab regulations and hasn't exaggerated its achievements. It disputes that its device could do just 15 tests, declining to say how many tests it now handles or to respond to some of the questions about its lab procedures, citing quote-unquote trade secrets. But Theranos' outside lawyer, David Boys, acknowledges that the company isn't yet using the device for all the tests that Theranos offers. The transition to doing every test with a device is a quote-unquote journey, he says. Asked about the claim on the company's website, David Boys replied that using the device for the full range of blood tests is a goal that Theranos will eventually achieve. Theranos points out that it has publicly disclosed doing certain esoteric and less commonly ordered tests with traditional machines on blood drawn with smaller needles from veins. During the journal's reporting, Theranos deleted a sentence on its website that said, 
many of our tests require only a few drops of blood. It also dropped a reference to collecting usually only three tiny microvials per sample instead of the usual six or more large ones. Heather King, the company's general counsel, says the changes were made for marketing accuracy. Ms. King and Mr. Boyes say Theranos's lab work is accurate. Theranos has performed tests on millions of patients referred by thousands of doctors and has received highly positive feedback, they say. Ms. Holmes declined interview requests from the journal for more than five months. Last week, the company said she would be available to comment, but her schedule did not allow it before the publication of this article. Some doctors appreciate the company's user-friendliness. Results sometimes arrive within 15 minutes, says Scott Wood, a primary care doctor in Menlo Park, California. That's exciting and could be very useful in emergency situations, he says. When patients ask about trying Theranos, he replies, sure, go ahead. Other doctors say that they've stopped steering patients to Theranos because of the results they didn't trust. I don't want my patients going there until more information and a better protocol are in place, says Dr. Gary Betts, an internist in Phoenix. Theranos is built around Ms. Holmes' self-professed phobia of needles. She has said in numerous public appearances that drawing a tiny amount of blood at a time from each patient's finger and avoiding syringes used by traditional labs will make patients less reluctant to get blood tests. That will lead to earlier diagnoses and save lives, according to Ms. Holmes. Her first idea was a small arm patch to screen blood for infectious diseases and deliver antibiotics, according to Phyllis Gardner, a Stanford Medical School professor with whom Ms. Holmes consulted at the time. The patch never made it to market. She was a young kid with only rudimentary engineering training and no medical training, says Dr. Gardner, whose husband was a member of Theranos' advisory board and still owns shares in the company. In 2005, Ms. Holmes hired Ian Gibbons, a British biochemist who had researched systems to handle and process tiny quantities of fluids. His collaboration with other Theranos scientists produced 23 patents, according to records filed with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Ms. Holmes is listed as a co-inventor on 19 of the patents. The patents show how Ms. Holmes' original idea morphed into the company's business model, but progress was slow. Dr. Gibbons told me that nothing was working, says his widow, Rochelle. In May of 2013, Dr. Gibbons committed suicide. Theranosis Ms. King says the scientist was, quote, frequently absent from work in the last years of his life due to health and other problems. Theranos disputes the claim that his technology was failing. After Dr. Gibbons's widow spoke to a journal reporter, a lawyer representing Theranos sent her a letter threatening to sue her if she continued to make false statements about Ms. Holmes and disclose confidential information. Ms. Gibbons owns Theranos shares that she inherited from her husband. Theranos began offering tests to the public in late 2013. 
It opened 42 blood drying wellness centers in the Phoenix area and two in California and one in Pennsylvania. Most are in Walgreens, Boots Alliance Inc. drugstores. Ms. Holmes successfully lobbied for an Arizona law that allows people to get tests without a doctor's order. Theranos' promise of fast results and prices that are a fraction of other labs pits it against Quest Diagnostics Inc. and Laboratory Corp. of America Holdings, which dominate the $75 billion a year blood testing industry in the United States. While the biggest venture capital firms specializing in healthcare aren't listed as Theranos investors, Oracle Corp. co-founder Larry Ellison and venture capital firm Draper Fisher Jerviston have bought stakes in Theranos. Theranos has raised several rounds of financing most recently in June of 2014. Like most closely held companies, Theranos has divulged little about its operations or financial results. Clinical labs usually buy their testing instruments from diagnostic equipment makers. Before those makers can sell to labs, they must undergo vetting by the Food and Drug Administration. Because Theranos doesn't sell its Edison machines to other labs, it didn't need the FDA's approval to start selling its tests. Still, the company has sought clearance for more than 120 of its tests in an effort to be rigorous and transparent. In July, Theranos announced the first FDA clearance of one of those tests, which detects herpes. The FDA and Theranos declined to comment on the status of the other submissions. Whether labs buy their testing instruments or develop them internally, all are required to prove to the federal centers for Medicare and Medicaid services that they can produce accurate test results. The process is known as proficiency testing and is administered by accredited organizations that send samples to labs several times a year. Labs must test those samples and report back the results, which aren't disclosed to the public. If a lab's results are close to the average of those in a peer group, the lab receives a passing grade. In early 2014, Theranos split some of the proficiency testing samples it got into two pieces, according to internal emails reviewed by the journal. One was tested with the Edison machines and the other with instruments from other companies. The two types of equipment gave different results when testing for vitamin D, two thyroid hormones, and for prostate cancer. The gap suggested to some employees at Theranos that the Edison results were off, according to the internal emails and people familiar with the findings. Senior lab employees showed both sets of results to Sunny Belwani, Theranos' president and chief operating officer. In an email, one employee said that he had read through the regulations more finely and asked which results should be reported back to the test administrators and government. Mr. Balwani replied the next day, copying in Ms. Holmes, I am extremely irritated and frustrated by folks with no legal background taking legal positions and interpretations on these matters. This must stop. Sonny added that the samples should never have been run on the Edisons to begin with, which is Theranos' proprietary technology, right? So, duh. Anyway, 
The article continued, former employees say that Mr. Belwani ordered lab personnel to stop using Edison machines on any of the proficiency testing samples and report only their results from instruments bought from other companies. The former employees say that they did what they were told, but were concerned that the instructions violated federal rules, which state that a lab must handle proficiency testing samples in the same manner it tests patient specimens and by using the laboratory's routine methods. In its everyday business at the time, Theranos routinely used Edison machines to test patients' blood samples for vitamin D, the two thyroid hormones, and for prostate cancer, the former employees say. In March of 2014, a Theranos employee using the alias Colin Ramirez alleged to New York State's public health lab that the company might have manipulated the proficiency testing process. Stephanie Shulman, director of the Public Health Clinical Lab Evaluation Program, responded that the practices described by the anonymous employee would be a violation of state and federal requirements, according to a copy of her email. What the employee described sounded like a form of proficiency test cheating, Ms. Shulman added. She referred the Theranos employee to the Public Health Lab's Investigations Unit. The New York State Department of Health confirms that it got a formal complaint in April of 2014 in regards to testing practices at Theranos and forwarded it to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Asked about the complaint, Theranos confirms that the Edison system produced results for several tests last year that differed from the results obtained from the traditional equipment. But that comparison was based on leftover proficiency testing samples used to conduct additional experiments and to verify best practices, says Ms. King, Theranos' general counsel. The company has never failed proficiency testing, she added. She says Mr. Belwani's instructions were consistent with the company's alternative assessment procedures, which it adopted because it believes its unique technology has no peer group and can be thrown off by the preservatives used in proficiency testing samples. Theranos has been upfront and transparent with regulators about the procedures, Ms. King adds. As of the end of 2014, Theranos did less than 10% of its tests on Edison machines including tests for prostate cancer and pregnancy, one former senior employee says. In addition to the 15 tests run on the Edison system, Theranos did about 60 more on traditional machines using a special dilution method, the former senior employee says. The company often collected such small amounts of blood that it had to increase those sample volumes to specifications required by those traditional machines. A third set of about 130 tests was run on traditional machines using larger samples drawn from patients' arms with a needle. So, Dreamers, did you get that breakdown? 15 tests run on the Edison, 60 more using finger prick sample blood and the dilution method running on traditional machines, and another 130 tests done like everybody else in the world has been doing it for decades.
For a test done with dilution, the process caused the concentration of substances in the blood being measured to fall below the machine's approved range, three former employees say. Lab experts say that the practice could increase the chance of erroneous results. Most labs dilute samples only in narrow circumstances, such as when trying to find out how much a patient has overdosed on a drug. Anytime you dilute a sample, you're adulterating the sample and changing it in some fashion, and that introduces more potential for error, says Tim Hamill, vice chairman of the University of California, San Francisco's Department of Laboratory Medicine. Using dilution frequently is poor lab practice. Therano says dilution is common in labs, but declines to say if it dilutes samples. Theranos' methods for preparing samples for analysis are trade secrets and cannot be revealed, says Ms. King. Those methods have been disclosed to regulators and don't adversely impact the quality of its tests or the accuracy of its test results, she added. Former employees say that diluting blood drawn from fingers contributed to accuracy problems early last year with a test to measure potassium. Lab experts say that finger-pricked blood samples can be less pure than those drawn from a vein because it often mixes with fluids and tissues from other cells that can interfere with the test. Some of the potassium results at Theranos were so high that patients would have had to have been dead for the results to be correct, according to one former employee. Ms. King denies any problems with the potassium test and says that Theranos has no indication that inaccurate results were returned to patients. Theranos challenged interpretations of its test results by healthcare providers and patients whose medical records were reviewed by the journal. After those people spoke to the journal, Theranos visited some of them and asked them to sign prepared statements that said the journal mischaracterized their comments. Two of them did and one refused. Carmen Washington, a nurse who worked at a clinic owned by Walgreens in Phoenix says that she began to question Theranos' accuracy after seeing abnormal results in potassium and thyroid tests. She says that she raised her concerns with the drugstore operator and Theranos' lab director, asking for data to show that the company's finger prick testing procedures produced results as accurate as blood drawn from a vein. They were never able to produce them, she says. Ms. King, Theranos' general counsel, says that the company did show detailed testing accuracy data to the nurse. A Walgreens spokesperson says that the nurse kept writing lab orders for Theranos until she stopped working for the clinic in February of 2015. Walgreens says that its partnership with Theranos has gone smoothly overall. About a dozen doctors and nurses complained about test results by phone or by email to the company from late 2013 to late 2014, a person familiar with the matter says. Now, late 2014 is when Adam Rosendorf resigned. He was the one who was given the task of fielding all of those complaints. So whatever happened to the complaints after that, I don't know. Anyway, the Arizona Attorney General's Office, State Health Department, and the Better Business Bureau say that they have received no complaints about Theranos. The rest of the article of John's article just talks more about the doctors who John had talked to and complained about Theranos' blood tests with 
Heather King refuting everything basically with opposing claims that Theranos was and is doing everything that everyone is saying they aren't doing and none of what they say they are doing. And John ended up closing out his article with a quote from patient Maureen Gluntz. She's the one who received the blood test results that indicated elevated levels of calcium, glucose, protein, and liver enzymes that were so alarmingly high that her doctor ended up sending her to the emergency room where she was subjected to more tests until it was finally determined that all of her levels were normal. Not only did it end up costing her thousands of dollars out of pocket, but she was also contacted by five different people representing Theranos, giving her the third degree about her visit to the ER and demanding to know private and personal information about her health history. And it was in such a way and done with such a tone that it was apparent that Theranos was attempting to blame her for her own wonky test results, as opposed to it being Theranos' wonky technology. So the article set off this whole hullabaloo. The morning after it was published, John was being interviewed by NPR, first thing. Fortune magazine, who were the ones who first placed Elizabeth on the cover with a story that really began her meteoric rise, at least by way of the mainstream media, its editor brought up the article in their daily email newsletter to their subscribers, and in it, he described Theranos as a high-flying unicorn that's gliding around a little bit closer to the ground following the scathing article. It was spreading like wildfire. Every publication that had gushed over Theranos were getting word that Silicon Valley's darling Queen Elizabeth might be having some trouble brewing in the kingdom that she worked so fiercely hard to protect from this exact thing from happening. And the news was also spreading really fast throughout the Silicon Valley area. But in the earliest stages of all of this and in the days and weeks following the publication of John's investigative piece, people were kind of split. Some readily defended Elizabeth, while for others it was like, I knew that this was too good to be true. That was like their aha moment for many who were dubious about the possibility of such technology that Theranos was claiming to have developed actually existed. There were many who had doubts for quite some time, and some of the things that added to the doubts included the fact that Elizabeth had been overly tight-lipped about this alleged technology. The fact that none of the members on Theranos' board of directors had even the most rudimentary grasp on the science of blood. And the fact that not one single investment firm that exclusively deals in the medical and healthcare industry made any kind of investment into Theranos. All of these facts caused many people to be skeptical. Elizabeth definitely targeted specific individuals, people that she would be able to easily appeal to, people who were typically older, wealthy men who she was able to sweet talk and flatter, 
people who were highly educated, highly regarded. They were people who knew a lot about many, many things. They knew about being a statesman, being a diplomat, being able to command and lead men and women into a war, but had not a clue about anything when it came to biomedical technology. So when the news broke that Theranos was possibly not all that it touted itself to be, for many, it confirmed their doubts. And then there were the people who were not sure what to think. They were on the fence. Theranos immediately went into damage control mode and put out a press release, which I'm going to share many of the key points with you. And and the reason why I'm going to share is because there's so many lies that I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't tell you the spin that Theranos was putting on this article. And they touched pretty much, they touched on pretty much everything that John Carreyrou had talked about. They went point by point, line by line. And by now, I think it's probably going to be exceedingly simple for all of us to be able to pick out all of the lies that Elizabeth, Sonny, and their hench people work to pull themselves out of this tailspin that they've found themselves in. Maybe even a flat spin, which is even more impossible to recover from. Well, most mostly impossible. You have to be really good. So this is what the press release that Theranos put out on October 22nd, 2015, had to say. On October 15th and 16th, the Wall Street Journal published two front page articles about Theranos. We have heard the questions and have followed these stories and want to provide answers. As we provide these answers, it's important to not lose sight of a few simple truths. Theranos' technology is reviewed by regulators proven in the field and praised by leaders in the industry and doctors and individuals that we serve. We provide blood tests faster, requiring far less blood and patient discomfort than for any test previously available or available today from any other laboratory. We have run more than 3.5 million tests with patient satisfaction scores from tens of thousands of patients that consistently rate Theranos on average, over 4.8 out of 5. To our knowledge, we are the first laboratory to publish our prices, lab proficiency testing scores, customer satisfaction scores, guest visit times, and more on our website. And dreamers, you all listening know that all of that that I just said are either lies or lies based on lies. We are confident in the reliability of our tests because we comprehensively validate the accuracy of every test that we run. In addition, we are the only laboratory that has committed to submitting all of our lab-developed tests, including our technology, procedures, and methods, to the FDA for review and clearance. The FDA has already cleared one of those tests, including our underlying test systems and nanotainer tubes, for use in detecting the herpes simplex virus 1 or HSV-1. The decision summary, which describes the rigorous science behind the clearance, is available online. And you already can tell that this one single FDA-approved test is going to be the thing that Theranos is going to 
ride off into the sunset with. They're going to pin everything that they're based on, on the fact that they were given approval for this one test. The faster speed and lower cost of our test means that consumers and their doctors can monitor the health so that problems are identified early enough to be addressed by medical professionals and that lower prices can reduce the cost to insurers, Medicare and Medicaid by billions of dollars and can give individuals access to critical health data that they could not otherwise afford. Dreamers, none of this was ever going to be true, at least not at the rate that Theranos was burning through money. There was nothing that Theranos was doing that could ever justify the low prices that they were apparently trying to charge patients. We know that Theranos was losing millions of dollars every single month in every single year that Theranos was in business. They knew they could never rely on actual retail business to stay afloat. The real money was coming from Elizabeth actively bilking investors. Our proprietary devices are making it possible to run finger stick samples for tests that could never be run on finger stick before. We began using our proprietary devices in our lab at the launch of our retail operations, and we initiated filings with the FDA two years ago by choice, not necessity, because we are seeking to create a new model for laboratory testing standards and have championed the FDA oversight ever since. It's the right thing which is also the hard thing. Dreamers, this is such BS because we know that deep within the inner workings of Theranos, one of their primary objectives was to circumvent FDA approval by any means and costs necessary. The HSV-1 lab developed tests getting FDA approval is one of hundreds and hundreds of tests that Theranos claims that they run. And if I had to guess, I'd say it was one of the easiest for them to pass the FDA because they needed something to hang their hat on. They needed to get cozy with the FDA because Elizabeth knew that this day of reckoning was a coming and she had to lay some sort of groundwork to be able to say, hey, look, we're with the FDA. We got one test to prove with others on the way. We are champions of FDA oversight, right? Is that what she was telling Lieutenant Colonel David Shoemaker three years earlier when he told her in no uncertain terms, no FDA approval means no Edison in the military, period, end of story, goodbye. All Elizabeth needed to do was seek FDA approval for the Edison and boom, she would have hundreds if not thousands of them things all over the world. If retired four-star General James Mattis had anything to say about it, and he had plenty to say, he wanted the Edison out there. He was a champion for his soldiers. He wanted the best medical technology available, and he had long been sold on Theranos hook, line, and sinker, even after the plan to deploy the Edison into the battlefield fizzled out. He stayed on board for quite some time after that. So for this press release to say we initiated filings with the FDA two years ago by choice, not by necessity, is just crap on top of crap. Theranos never really did anything by choice. They did the things the way that they wanted to do them. And if anyone ever tried to enforce anything, Theranos 
sidestepped it. If anyone ever tried to force Theranos to do anything, they refused. If anyone ever insisted Theranos needed to jump through this hoop or that hoop, Theranos would do anything but. If anyone ever tried to say, hey, this is wrong, those people were ordered, bullied, and intimidated into silence. Don't forget, Theranos went into the deals with Walgreens and Safeway with the intention of placing Edison's in as many stores as they possibly could across the country with aspirations of one day going global. That was never going to happen without direct FDA approval of the Edison or the mini lab itself. And Theranos had been dodging that for years. And they were doing so because of that one nugget of truth that was in that section of this press release. It's the hard thing to do. We are the same company offering the same services that we were last week. While that is true, it's not a good thing like at all by any stretch of the imagination. This is not good. Now let us tell you what the reporter got wrong and why. The stories say or imply many things that are simply wrong. The following are examples of the reporter's incorrect points and the truth. The stories suggest that Theranos tests are not accurate. This is wrong. Theranos tests are accurate and reliable. Here are the facts. Theranos has provided accurate and reliable tests to tens of thousands of satisfied customers. You can see testimonials from some of those guests on our website. We gave a selection of testimonials in writing to the reporter on July 1st, 2015. Dreamers, this doesn't mean much to me because we already know that Sunny Balwani isn't above manipulating things like this. We know that he arranged for fake reviews to be posted on Glassdoor to offset the many negative reviews that Theranos had received from anonymous current and or former employees. We know that Sunny commissioned to have software written specifically for the Edison in order to cover up the error messages with a fake stalled out percentage completion tracker to appear in place of the error on the device's digital touchscreen. And that's pretty damn shady. And that in and of itself would have made it impossible for the FDA to approve the thing. And it could very well have gotten Theranos in huge trouble with regulators if they were ever caught with this trumped up fake ass software that Sunny had written and installed on those janky ass machines. The press release continued. Just this past July, the FDA cleared Theranos' finger stick test for the HSV-1, which included a rigorous review of our underlying test systems and finger stick technology. In order to clear that technology, the FDA rigorously reviewed our test systems and nanotainer tubes. To view the studies that show the accuracy and reliability of Theranos' HSV-1 test, take a look at the FDA's decision this summer here. And... A link is provided, but I didn't click on it for one because I don't know if the link is broken or not. And I don't think that there's any point either way because we know that the testing protocols are wacky at best and, you know, garbage in, garbage out. But Theranos was going to ride that herpes approval until the wheels fell off. The FDA's decision provides independent validation of the groundbreaking Theranos system upon which the HSV-1 test is run. The FDA's decision summary describes how Theranos' clearance 
is for use for the HSV-1 on Theranos system and performed on finger stick obtained with the nanotainer tubes. The press release went on to give all these details how Theranos passed these rigorous herpes tests with the FDA, that the study was conducted on 818 individuals on 69 different Theranos devices, and they also pointed out how using such a large number of proprietary devices is unique to Theranos because most studies are conducted on one or two devices at most. That may be true, Dreamers. I can't say for sure. They may have tested 818 people using 69 Edisons to obtain results, but I'd be willing to bet my firstborn, and that would be the same as my onlyborn, that any test results that were questionable or samples that produced no results were tossed out and not included in the final study report. We do know that Theranos employees did that for a fact. We told this information to the reporter on July 3rd, 2015. The reporter did not ask a single question about Theranos' FDA clearance or CLIA waiver. Then this press release went into being regulated by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is abbreviated CMS, and their Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments, which is CLIA. To earn and maintain the CLIA certification, Theranos must ensure the accuracy and reliability of our tests. CLIA's purpose is to ensure quality laboratory testing and to ensure accurate and reliable test results. Theranos is a full-service lab that is subject to regulation by the CMS. CMS regulates all lab testing except research performed on humans in the United States through CLIA. While much of this is true, we know that Theranos earned its CLIA under false pretenses and deceived the representative that was sent to inspect the lab. And if you remember, it was a lab that had not one single Edison in it, but rather machines made by third parties. Those are the machines and the lab that were given the certification while the lab with the actual Theranos devices in it remained hidden from view. Then the press release really started piling it on. It read, before we offered tests to anyone, anywhere, regardless of the machines or the methods used, we had to scientifically verify the accuracy and reliability of that test. We have done that for each and every one of our tests. That's a lie. Theranos publishes our proficiency testing results and certain validation data on our websites. That would be only the data that Theranos wants the public to see. To our knowledge, none of our competitors are willing to be so transparent. We told the reporter this on several occasions. Dreamers, no company is perfect, but transparency is hardly a word that I would use to describe Theranos. The technology that is currently being used to run these blood tests have been around for a very long time and hadn't really been making any sort of waves in the industry. Theranos, on the other hand, had been talking about changing the face of medical diagnostics as we know it. They were the ones that needed to put up or shut up, not Quest Diagnostics or LabCorp. In addition to our regulators, our business partners have spoken in support of Theranos' technology. And Dreamers, we also know that the business partners were as in the dark about the technology as the board of directors, the venture capitalists, the investors, and countless doctors and patients until some of them, the ones usually getting attacked by Theranos phlebotomists, decided to question the technology methods and the results. 
Of course, everyone involved with Theranos has nothing but nice things to say because Theranos is allegedly going to make everybody filthy stinking rich. Why would they have anything unsupportive to say? We gave quotes and sources to the reporter over several occasions. He did not use any of those quotes or sources in his article. Because they were lies. Sweet little lies. Then Theranos' press release went into the finger stick technology. The article implies that Theranos said that all of our tests are performed with finger sticks. That is not true. We have consistently said in public statements on our website and to our customers and wellness centers that some of our tests are performed on venous draws, in part because we have become a full-service laboratory. In December of 2014, Theranos offered more than 80 of the tests on our online test menu via finger stick. Also, of the finger stick tests that Theranos offered, all ran using proprietary technologies, technologies that are not commercially available, except for a few routinely used point-of-care tests. Here are the facts. Then the press release goes on to talk about how they were working to transition to an FDA framework that they have moved from use of their lab-developed tests to FDA-cleared and approved assays, that they had been increasing the number of tests that they offer in order to become a full-service lab, that they offer tests on venous samples, run in their own lab from the time that they launched and had expanded that capability to be able to offer rare and specialty tests at their unprecedented low prices, as those are the tests that often cost the most. Additionally, because of this offering, most patients would not have to go to multiple labs to fill multiple lab orders. Okay, dreamers, none of that is true except that Theranos tried to run a few tests on the Edison using finger stick blood samples. They maybe got to about a dozen tests, if that, but there is no indication that there was any consistency or reliability when it came to the test results. We know that Theranos modified Siemens machines in order to try and run finger stick blood samples through it instead of large samples taken from veins, and we know that that did not go well because of the dilution protocol, making the tests unreliable and invalid. And beyond that, Theranos tried as much as they could to fall back on venous blood draws instead of finger stick tests. But not only did that go against their very promise to the customer that all it takes is a couple drops of blood that we kept hearing over and over again, it also was nothing new nothing groundbreaking, nothing special. And there is no way that Theranos would have been able to continue to offer those expensive blood tests for the minimally low cost that they were trying to. They were on their way to bankrupting themselves year in and year out until they were able to conjure up the next round of funding. In the press release, it also said that since around the time of Theranos' launch, their website has said that they process both finger stick and venous draws. And on dozens of occasions, Theranos has explained that they are a full service lab that can conduct a broad array of tests and are using venipuncture. Then it listed links to several articles where I guess it goes to back up their claims. But 
you really can't back up your own claims and lies with your own prior claims and lies. So it's kind of a moot point. It then said that they told these things to the reporter at least three times. And then it goes on to explain all the things about the implications within the article about the testing. It said that the article in the Wall Street Journal implied that Theranos' proprietary devices were only capable of running a limited number of tests. First, the Edison is only one of many proprietary devices used as a part of Theranos' proprietary technologies. In total, Theranos Research and Development has developed hundreds of tests for finger stick samples using our proprietary devices. Honestly, Jamers, I don't know what it means by many devices. From my understanding, the Edison was supposed to be this all-in-one, one-stop shop for every blood test, a miniaturized portable laboratory. I actually really can't tell what direction Elizabeth thought she was going with the various prototypes that they were building and developing, but I thought it was supposed to be one single all-inclusive testing device. But anyway, the press release went on to say that even basic things were misrepresented. Theranos has invented much more than just the Edison. In fact, the Edison is an early version of just one of our proprietary devices used as a part of Theranos' proprietary technologies. We told the reporter this on October 11th, 2015. The journal rejected our offer for a demonstration. On October 8th, Theranos offered to bring one of our devices to the journal for demonstration purposes to show the capabilities of Theranos' technology so they could compare results to any other lab of their choosing. We made this offer with no strings attached. The journal declined. Okay, Dreamers, I know we talked about this in the last part, and that is true. Super attorney David Boys, at the last minute during their second meeting with John and the others from the Wall Street Journal, they offered to bring in an Edison and give them a live demo, and the journal did decline. That was because they were told it would take several weeks to work out the details of the demonstration, but the journal couldn't wait several weeks because they needed to publish this article before Elizabeth was set to speak at their own tech conference, which was scheduled just a week after the article was set to print. Printing the article after Elizabeth spoke at the Wall Street Journal's tech event would make things really awkward for the journal. But then again, Elizabeth speaking at the event after the publication of the article would be awkward also. So either way, they're kind of screwed. Theranos had many weeks, if not months, to offer the journal a live demonstration. Waiting to the last minute certainly came across as a ploy to try and delay or postpone the article, and the journal simply wasn't going to allow Theranos any more time. Their press release continued. The reporter writes that lab experts say finger-pricked blood samples can be less pure than those drawn from a vein because finger-pricked blood often mixes with fluids and tissues and cells that can interfere with tests. This is misleading. With each FDA filing, Theranos is showing that our finger stick tests are just as accurate as Venus draws, starting with our first FDA clearance this summer. Here are the facts. As a part of its test validation before making submissions to the FDA, 
Theranos generates validation data showing equivalence between results from capillary and venous blood samples run using our proprietary technologies. Indeed, the FDA determined that Theranos' finger stick test and associated device for HSV-1 performed just as accurately and reliably as a predicate venous test system. And they provided the link to the FDA's data about that specific test and that they sent it to the reporter on July 17, 2015. Okay, dreamers, first off, we do know that blood from finger stick tests do tend to have substances and debris in it that can throw certain tests off. And we've seen this discussed repeatedly when it comes to potassium. Squeezing blood from a finger causes red blood cells to rupture, which causes elevated potassium levels. It's not misleading. It just takes some knowledge and understanding of blood sciences and medicine to not only grasp how blood draws work, but to understand why finger blood differs from venous blood. So let's not forget, Elizabeth is the one who decided to go into the field of biomedical technology completely blind, with no education, no background, or no experience in the field. I said it early on, Elizabeth was hoping that time would be on her side. Enough time for her to will this invention into being. I won't take that away from her. Elizabeth seemed to want this to work really badly, but we just aren't there with the advances in science and technology yet for that to be a thing. And it's worth mentioning that the herpes test is not so much about accuracy as opposed to being a yes or no kind of an answer, which gives Theranos a decent 50-50 chance of getting it right. And that was way easier for Theranos. All that goes to show is that the debris and substances that are in finger stick blood samples don't necessarily throw off a test like HSV-1. It's yes or no. As for the finger stick test itself, I found there to be only a handful of tests that are routinely used for finger prick blood, and those include glucose. If you or someone you know is diabetic and routinely needs to check their blood sugar on their own portable device, you know that they do so using a lancet that pokes the finger and you put the blood in the little the little tab thingy and you stick it in the little reader and it gives you a number. The tests using finger stick also include testing for mono, hemoglobin levels, genetic testing, and when they test genetics for a newborn, they do a heel prick. Finger stick is also used for a complete blood count test or a CBC, a prothrombin test, which is the amount of time it takes blood to clot. And that is generally it. Six routine tests out there that use finger stick blood. Theranos was aiming towards using only finger stick blood. And after years and years of trying and trying and lying and lying, it never came to fruition. The next rant in the press release had to do with the proficiency testing how there was a quote from a senior director at Quest Diagnostics in the December 2014 New Yorker article that said finger stick blood tests aren't reliable for clinical diagnostic tests because the blood isn't drawn from a vein, 
So the sample can be contaminated by lanced capillaries and damaged tissues. That the reporter questioned the accuracy of Theranos' test based on a February 2014 experiment using leftover proficiency testing samples, and that this is wrong and misleading because the reporter does not explain that the experiment was not designed to assess the accuracy of any Theranos test, nor was it proficiency testing. That's a lie. It was exactly used to test the accuracy of Theranos' test and that Theranos had shared his proficiency testing methods with our regulators and our proficiency testing methods to meet regulatory requirements. And that's a lie too. That experiment that they're referencing was run by Theranos lab employees on their own. If you recall, Sonny got really pissed off and yelled at everybody. They were running tests on leftover samples on both the Edison and the Siemens machines to compare the results. They ended up submitting tests only from the Siemens machines, but reported the results had come from the Edison. And that is really what caused Adam Rosendorf in particular to be exceptionally concerned because it was deceitful, it was illegal, and his name was all over everything as the senior lab director. Therano said that they gave this information to the reporter on July 3rd, 2015, but the reporter never disclosed any of this information in his article because the reporter knew that it was all lies, 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 because he had Adam Rosendorf in his pocket. The reporter raises questions regarding whether Theranos' proficiency testing protocols comply with regulations. But the approach that the reporter describes is unremarkable. It's just a description of Theranos' alternative assessment procedures. Theranos has explained our process to our regulators, and proficiency testing at Theranos meets regulatory requirements, this might be the case, but we know that Theranos ran their proficiency tests on third-party analyzers, not the Edisons, and they reported that the data had come from the Edisons, so it's just lies upon lies upon lies. I can't say it enough. The reporter cites claims of anonymous former employees that Sonny Balwani, our president and COO, ordered them to report only the results from instruments bought from other companies. This is nothing more than a description of Theranos' proficiency testing process and alternative assessment procedures. Among other things, what is missing from this explanation is that in accordance with regulations, Theranos keeps the alternative assessment procedures data on hand so that CLIA surveyors can review it when they visit Theranos. We know that the surveyors and regulators were only shown things that Theranos wanted them to see and hid things from them that they didn't want them to see. For Pete's sakes, they hid an entire laboratory from regulators that was filled with Edison's and Minilabs. The reporter omitted important content and falsely characterized Mr. Balwani's email. Among other things, Mr. Balwani's email explicitly directed employees to follow lab standard operating procedures. That's a lie. Discuss training of staff on Theranos' proficiency testing and alternative assessment procedures? That's true, but when they say alternative procedures, they're really offering alternative truths and alternative facts, which amounts to more lies, and that Mr. Belwani said that outside counsel and regulators are always available to answer any questions. And that's a lie because we know that Balwannabe007 spied on everybody's communications and Nobody felt free to communicate with anybody, 
even within the company, much less outside the company. There is no way that anybody was available to answer any questions about anything. It was a culture of fear and intimidation that kept everybody quiet. The reporter selectively quotes from an email regarding an employee reading regulations. What that email actually says is that after reading through the regulations more finely, the employee concluded that Theranos would have to conduct alternative assessment procedures under the regulations and that the reporter took the quote out of context. Okay, so dreamers, there was an article that ran the same day as Carrie Rue's very first article in the Wall Street Journal. And this second article ran in USA Today. And it discussed the findings of the journal's article and that Theranos had just come under fire. And it wrote, The journal article describes how in one instance, two types of equipment gave different results when testing for vitamin D, two thyroid hormones, and prostate cancer. The gap suggested to some employees that the Edison results were off according to internal emails and people familiar with the findings. Senior lab employees showed both sets of results to Sonny Belwani. In an email, one employee said that he read through the regulations more finely and asked which results would be reported back to test administrators and to the government. Mr. Balwani replied the next day, copying in Elizabeth Holmes, writing, I am extremely irritated and frustrated with folks with no legal background taking legal positions and interpretations on these matters. This must stop. Because Sonny and Elizabeth have all sorts of background and expertise to be running a company like Theranos, right? In fact, I have arrived at the opinion at this point that Sonny and Elizabeth were the most unqualified people associated with Theranos out of everybody. Everyone at that company had a purpose. Everybody had a job. Everybody had a role. Everybody had a skill set. Everybody had some proficiency and some know-how to be at Theranos, except for them too. The press release says that the reporter took Sonny's email out of context. Then the press release circled back to the complaint that was filed by a former employee that was Tyler Schultz. The reporter referred to a purported complaint filed by a former employee with the New York State Department of Health in March of 2014. This anecdote is irresponsibly reported. Even the reader has no way of knowing the contents of the purported complaint since the reporter then immediately cites only the response of the representative, Stephanie Schulman. This leaves the misleading impression that whatever this former employee described was what Theranos actually did. The reporter did not show Theranos a copy of this document. And like I said, dreamers, we know that this was a complaint filed by Tyler Schultz, who many of have hailed as being more of a hero to this story than anything else. We know that Tyler weighed his options when he turned to Stephanie Schulman, and she told him what actions he could take next. And filing the complaint was the best option for Tyler at the time. Theranos had the opportunity to answer to what was said in the complaint before Tyler ever even went to regulators for help. He tried communicating his concerns to Elizabeth directly, but all she did was send his complaints to Daniel Young, who basically came up with more excuses and lies that left Tyler unsatisfied. 
So he took the steps that he needed to take to get those things off of his chest because he knew that Theranos was messing with people's lives. An inspection of Theranos was triggered because of the complaint, and they managed to lie and deceive their way through that too. And Theranos knew for months, at least six or seven months, that they were being investigated by the journal, and they had ample time to answer to all of the allegations that were being made against them. Yet they chose to try to control the narrative without actually tackling and confronting the allegations head on like they should have and had plenty of time to do so. The reporter also irresponsibly miscategorizes Theranos' response to his questions. It's very misleading for the reporter to have written, as he did, that he asked about the complaint and Theranos confirms that the Edison system produced results for several tests last year that differed from results obtained from traditional equipment. The reporter asked about a complaint, and separately, we also talked to the reporter about the February 2014 experiment, but these two things are completely unrelated, and to link them together is irresponsible journalism. Lies. More lies. The complaint and the differing results were directly related to one another. The complaint that Tyler made was triggered by the fact that Theranos was deceiving regulators who ran the proficiency tests. He knew that they were being deceitful, reporting falsified results, and in doing so, were setting themselves up to potentially do a tremendous amount of harm to the public. That's what the bottom line was for everybody at the end of the day. Can we keep doing the work that we're doing, knowing that Theranos could potentially be putting people's health at risk? The answer for everybody was a resounding no, we can't except for Elizabeth and Sonny. They did not give two shits about any of the danger that they were putting people in. They didn't care. The only people who expressed concerns about patients was everybody else. Theranos employees, lab technicians, engineers, doctors, nurses, everybody except for those two. That's irresponsible. These are the quote-unquote facts that Theranos listed to rebut the reporter's claims. Proficiency testing at Theranos meets applicable regulatory requirements. No regulator has ever cited Theranos for our use of alternative assessment procedures for our lab-developed tests. Theranos first heard about this complaint from the reporter, not from any one of our regulators. And that's a lie because we know the complaint triggered a visit and they knew it was because of a complaint. The reporter questioned the accuracy of Theranos tests based on anecdotal accounts from a handful of providers. But during the reporting process, Theranos exposed the reporter for misrepresenting stories from four out of the seven providers that he gave us. The other three refused to engage with us. And those were the only stories the reporter decided to print. Okay, dreamers, we know that based on the account of at least one of those providers, that Sonny and his cronies attempted to strong arm and intimidate the providers into recanting what they had told John Carreyrou in regards to their complaints about Theranos's blood test results being significantly off because they did go on the record with John 
So Sonny was able to track them down and start threatening them. And in order to spare themselves the drama and the bad Yelp reviews, they went ahead and signed paperwork, taking back what they said. We know this to be a fact because of the providers that stood by their statements to John, who did refuse to recant or to sign anything that Sonny showed up with. But ultimately, they did not want their name or the name of their practice published in John's article. Perhaps the other providers refused to engage with Theranos, but based on track records, I'd sooner believe that Theranos was the one who refused to engage with anyone who had anything negative to say about Theranos, and that included John Carreyrou. For many, many months, they refused to speak to him. They ducked and dodged and bobbed and weaved, and to this day, the only place Elizabeth and Sonny have been made to answer up to their actions was in the 2017 deposition at Elizabeth's late 2021 trial and now currently with Sonny's trial. Refusal to engage was Theranos' standard operating procedure. Theranos is committed to a dialogue with any providers who have issues or questions about our tests. Part of this commitment is quickly responding to any concerns. That is why when the reporter made us aware of certain providers' questions, we followed up directly with them shortly thereafter. Now, this is true to an extent. Provider complaints were funneled directly to Adam Rosendorf, and ultimately, it was the inability to continually lie for the company while fielding all of these complaints that is what ultimately led Adam to put in his resignation in late 2014. This is what it said in Carrie Rue's book. This was three weeks after the Halloween party. Adam was sitting at his new office in Newark, California, when he got a call from Christian Holmes. That's Elizabeth's brother. Christian wanted Adam to handle yet another doctor's complaint. Adam fielded dozens of them since the company had gone live with its tests the previous fall. Time and time again, Adam had been asked to convince physicians that blood test results that he had no confidence in were sound and accurate and Adam decided he could no longer do it anymore. His conscience wouldn't allow him to. He told Christian no, and immediately emailed Sonny and Elizabeth to inform them that he was resigning and to ask them to immediately take his name off the lab's CLIA certification. Then, Dreamers, if you recall, Adam went on vacation for a couple of weeks, and when he came back, he was terminated immediately, and they tried to force him to sign more non-disclosure affidavits, as well as allow HR access to his private Gmail account so that they could ensure that the emails that they caught him forwarding to himself were deleted. Ultimately, Adam took the advice of his attorney and deleted everything, but he ended up becoming a critical source of information for John Carreyrou's extensive investigation. Then the press release said, each of the four providers who signed documents recanting what they told John apparently gave Theranos additional facts and context including the health condition of the patient in question, which showed that the reporter had told Theranos an incomplete and misleading story. Some said the reporter had attributed things to them that they never said. Some said the reporter left out of his allegations the positive experiences that they had with Theranos. Some said that they did not know that they were on the record with a journalist when they spoke to him. Two out of the four providers who met with Theranos in fact asked Theranos if they could help further with written statements, which the reporter incorrectly implies 
were prepared without their involvement, reflected only what they proactively told us they wanted to say. Those statements showed that the reporter's story about them was untrue. Two other providers who met with Theranos gave Theranos additional facts and circumstances that showed the reporting of the anecdotes was misleading and imbalanced. Theranos gave the reporter those facts wherever it could do so, consistent with our commitment to maintain patient privacy. Theranos provided the reporter with no fewer than six on-the-record written statements about providers and patients on July 1st, 3rd, 26th, August 8th, October 5th, and October 12th, providing additional facts and context. And to that, dreamers, all I have to say is the proof is in the pudding. Theranos was never transparent. They were never forthcoming. They never provided any real facts or information to anyone. And the only privacy that they were committed to was their own. And that was so they could ensure that their lies would remain hidden behind that veil of secrecy that they worked so hard to maintain all of those years. The press release continued on and addressed the nurse, Carmen Washington, who said that she found Theranos' tests to be unreliable because of numerous questionable results, as well as Dr. Nicole Sundin and Dr. Gary Betts. They were among those who stood by their statements to John, and Theranos mostly blamed HIPAA and privacy laws as the reasons why they could not provide more information about this. Theranos' statement carried on and on about the recent FDA approval for the herpes test and you know, they're going to keep on touting that as much as they possibly can. They're going to beat everybody over the head with that one FDA approval. But, you know, you're going to need more than herpes to carry a $9 billion company. The press release went on some more about Theranos' recent attempts to make nice with the FDA and how the article implied that there was something suspicious about that. There is something suspicious about that just due to the fact that Theranos has attempted in many other ways to get around the need for FDA approval because their technology doesn't work. All that one single herpes test approval did was validate that Theranos' finger stick process or that one test can provide a yes or no answer as to whether or not someone has herpes. If anyone needed to know if their cholesterol levels were below 200, Theranos would not be able to provide an accurate answer reliably using blood milked from a finger stick. But the press release said that Theranos is doing the right thing, which is also the hard thing, and we are charting a new path. Yeah, a new path to Liarsville, population Elizabeth and Sunny. The reporter purportedly spent five months working on a story about Theranos, but his story did not reflect the views of many eminent scientists, thought leaders, hospitals, and business partners who have worked and partnered with the company around our technology and found it to be innovative and revolutionary. Instead, the reporter relied on anonymous sources, and this allowed the reporter to avoid having to reveal the biases and lack of knowledge of the sources. It is apparent that these former employees did not understand Theranos' technology. They are unfamiliar with the processes currently employed by the company, and they do not understand the regulatory framework that Theranos operates under. But by making them anonymous, readers do not know when they worked at Theranos or for how long, whether they even worked in Theranos' laboratory, as opposed to some other division in the company, or why they left. 
dreamers. Nobody who had any interaction with Theranos in any capacity ever had the freedom or ability to speak freely with anyone about Theranos because everybody involved with the company was sworn to secrecy. They damn near literally had to take a blood oath and sell their souls. And when people did speak to John Carreyrou on the record, Theranos hunted them down and threatened to slap everybody around with lawsuits. And they managed to intimidate some of them into rolling back on what they had said to Carreyrou about Theranos. And as for only speaking to anonymous sources, like I said earlier, several of those who went on the record either recanted or wanted their names left out of the article, and they did so out of fear of being sued. Everybody else had to stay anonymous in order to save themselves from having their lives and the lives of their families driven into financial ruin by a company that had unlimited financial resources at the time. It is not unusual for journalists to have and use confidential sources and we mostly take reputable journalists at face value when they come up with a story like this. Reputation is everything in journalism. And John Carreyrou had several awards under his belt at the time that the article in Theranos ran, including two Pulitzer Prizes. So to try and pass the article off as a bunch of conjectural hooey written by an irresponsible journalist isn't going to be easy. And John keeping his sources confidential doesn't mean he hasn't vetted what they've had to say and what they told him and that he thoroughly investigated and corroborated the information presented in his article. Keeping them confidential means keeping them safe. And that is particularly important when you're dealing with a company as desperate and dangerous as Theranos. The press release went on to say that the reporter attributes certain statements to lab experts and that most of those experts are anonymous, that there is no reason to keep these experts anonymous. All anonymity does is obfuscate their qualifications and the potential that they have a vested interest in criticizing Theranos, such as possibly being one of Theranos's competitors. I can think of at least one other reason to keep those experts anonymous. And again, it has to do with protecting themselves and their livelihoods from Theranos. They've demonstrated time and time again that they will stop at nothing to try and intimidate people into staying quiet. We saw that play out in some of the worst ways with their own employees, namely Ian Gibbons, Tyler Schultz, and George Schultz. I can't sit here and blame Theranos completely for Ian's suicide. But they sure as heck didn't help. And I'd bet anything that they were probably relieved that Ian was silenced, even if it was by his own hand. And as for Tyler and George, grandson and grandpa, Elizabeth Holmes orchestrated the manipulation of George Schultz by showering him with attention and praise, and millions of dollars in stocks in order to win favor with him over his own flesh and blood. As for the fear of competitors out to bring Theranos down, I don't think that was ever a thing. I don't think there was ever anything to that. 
I think that was all just spin from Elizabeth and Sonny to justify their secrecy and the way that they operated. I don't think that there was any company out there afraid that Theranos was doing things that nobody had been able to figure out how to do for decades upon decades. If, and that's a big if, any of the competitors, the people that really mattered, ever even heard of Theranos to begin with. The press release next went after Rochelle Gibbons, Ian's widow. It stated, while ignoring Theranos' on-the-record statements, which dreamers, of course, were a bunch of dodgy lies and beating around the bush, and our lab director and senior scientist, dreamers, let's not forget that their lab director at the time was the dermatologist totally unqualified and the actual qualified former lab director who was replaced by the dermatologist was Adam Rosendorf and was totally not being ignored by John Carreyrou. In fact, it was quite the opposite. The reporter offered great latitude and seemingly abandoned his skepticism when speaking to Theranos' critics. For example, the reporter relies on Rochelle Gibbons, but he failed to report that Rochelle Gibbons is a friend of an individual whom Theranos sued for patent invalidity and other claims during litigation last year that individual repeatedly contacted Mrs. Gibbons via email to solicit her testimony against Theranos. Okay, so we know here they're talking about Richard Fwiz and that he and Rochelle were not particularly friendly for any other reason other than their connection to Theranos. Richard did take Elizabeth's founding of Theranos personally. He took it as a personal slight. And for years before he was sued by Theranos, he had applied for and was given that patent that he knew would throw a monkey wrench into Theranos' long-term plans, which it eventually did, which is what Richard wanted. He had a lot of money, and he was able to withstand Theranos' lawsuit for a time. But he eventually had to cave in since Theranos had too much money and too much attorney power to continue to fight against them. Richard did want Ian's testimony because he knew Ian was the key to proving that Elizabeth's name being on nearly every single one of Theranos' patents would have invalidated most, if not all of them, because she had no knowledge, education, know-how, background, skills, or aptitude when it came to being an inventor. Richard did connect with Rochelle because he knew that she had a sour taste in her mouth when it came to Theranos because she blamed the company for Ian's death. Yes, both Rochelle and Richard clearly had a bone to pick with Elizabeth, but it would take much more than the two of them to get Carrie article to print, and he knew that. John Carrie knew that he needed sources that had no dog in the fight, but that doesn't mean that their words are invalid. And besides, Rochelle did hold a lot of Theranos stock. She had more to gain to stay quiet and cash out than she did in speaking up and bringing Theranos down. The press release then said, when that friend, Richard Fwiz, tried to use statements by Mrs. Gibbons against Theranos in litigation, she refused to make any statement under oath and the court found her statements should not be credited. And dreamers, the truth is, is that Ian stood by his confidentiality blood oath to Theranos and did not disclose all that much to Rochelle 
beyond a few vague insinuations that Theranos' devices didn't work. The press release said that Mrs. Gibbons was married to Theranos to a Theranos employee who passed away in May of 2013, and that Mrs. Gibbons never worked for the company and had no input into Theranos' business, let alone its technology. But you know what, dreamers? If nothing else, Rochelle Gibbons is the face of the human toll that Theranos had on individual lives. Whether you want to believe Ian's death was directly or indirectly related to Theranos' actions, Ian can very much be considered one of their casualties. The press release ended with a statement. From his very first interactions with Theranos, the reporter made it abundantly clear that he considered Theranos to be a target to be taken down and not simply the subject of an objective news story. The articles that appeared in the journal last week are the inevitable product of that approach. So, as the story spread, John Carreyrou got word that Elizabeth was going to show up to an interview with Jim Cramer on CNBC's Mad Money. During the day, John got some more news. He heard that the FDA had recently visited Theranos' headquarters. It was a pop visit to both the headquarters on Page Mill Road in the Sanford Research Park and the laboratory, which was located at a different facility on the east side of the San Francisco Bay in the city of Newark. It was during this visit that the FDA found the nanotainer to be a medical device that had not passed FDA inspection and ordered Theranos to stop using it immediately. John found this out from his source at the FDA that the nanotainer tube was definitely something that they regulated and it needed FDA clearance and it was the easiest way for the FDA to make a move against Theranos. But it wasn't the nanotainer that brought the FDA in for their surprise visit. It was the shoddy data that Theranos had been turning over to the FDA while it was working to get their lab developed tests approved. Representatives visiting the two locations didn't find any data that was found to be more valid than what they had seen, so they made the decision to put a halt to the finger stick blood test by banning the use of the nanotainer. John also found out that the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare were initiating an investigation and were also planning an inspection in the very near future. A few hours after speaking to his FDA source, John saw Elizabeth on Mad Money. And I'm going to play the audio clip of that interview. It's not too long, maybe about nine minutes or so. And this is the interview where Elizabeth makes this statement. This is what happens when you work to change things. First, they think you're crazy. Then they fight you. And then all of a sudden, you change the world. Yeah, okay, whatever. Never mind the years and years and years and millions and millions and millions of dollars that Theranos enjoyed. Nobody on the outside was fighting them. Everyone was afraid to. Theranos itself was its own worst enemy. Sonny, too. I don't think Sonny ever believed in Theranos. Maybe Elizabeth did. She had this certain kind of passion. Maybe it was misguided, but 
I think she tried as mightily as she could to make this all happen. It just caught up with her. She just didn't know when to hold them and she didn't know when to fold them. So here's the audio from that CNBC interview on Mad Money. The very day that John's article went live. Lately, one of the most exciting privately held companies in Silicon Valley has come under fire. I'm talking about Theranos. That's the diagnostics company with the ultra-fast finger prick blood testing technology that's aiming to upend the entire traditional healthcare establishment by making it easier, less expensive, and much less uncomfortable for you to get tested for a whole range of conditions. For the last few years, Theranos has been viewed as a revolutionary company. CEO has been uh, heralded as next Steve Jobs. Company has been valued as much as $9 billion in its most recent round of fundraising. But Theranos also has its critics, and just this morning, the Wall Street Journal ran a pretty scathing article about the company, alleging that the company's proprietary testing devices may be inaccurate, and basically accusing Theranos of deceptive practices. The journal cites a former employee who claimed that of the 240 tests offered by Theranos, only 15 are actually performed on the company's proprietary Edison diagnostic machine, vast majority of the rest being done on traditional lab equipment. The article was pretty brutal. But here on Mad Money, we know something. We know that there are two sides to every single story, which is why I think it's important that we speak to Elizabeth Holmes, the founder and CEO of Theranos, who's coming to us this afternoon from Boston, where she's attending a meeting of the Board of Fellows at Harvard Medical School to give her a chance to answer the charges raised in the article. Ms. Holmes, welcome back to Mad Money. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. I have to tell you, in all my years, I can't recall a private company that I have to candidly many have never heard of getting this kind of attention and scrutiny. What do you think is going on here? This is what happens when you work to change things. And first they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. And um, I, I have to say, I, I, I personally was shocked to see that the journal would publish something like this when we had sent them over a 1,000 pages of documentation demonstrating that the statements in their piece were false, but um, but we're doing things differently, and we're working to make a difference, and that means people raise questions, and, and that's okay. Uh, but in this case, it was pretty disappointing to see that after every single one of the sources that we spoke with, who the journal had contacted, told us that the statements that were being attributed to them were false or misleading, and the only sources who were left were ones who wouldn't speak with us, who on their own website say that they now do business with LabCorp in their office or in the other case demanded in writing that we pay them in cash up front $2,500 for an hour to talk to them about their statements did, to the journal. Did the journal those know things what you referenced. just said? Did the journal know everything that you just said before they wrote the article? Uh, of, of course, absolutely. Oh, okay. Uh, at the same time, pretty negative articles. So let me ask you, you, I know that you've talked to us about your partnership with Walgreens, one of the best uh, retailers out there, great drugstore chain, Cleveland Clinic, one of obviously the most admired uh, health care facilities. Did either call you today and say, you know what, we got to rethink our relationship? Absolutely not. We're incredibly blessed to have partners who have worked with us, have actually seen our technology. And unfortunately, in this case, we offered to bring our technology to the journal offices to show them the technology they were questioning running firsthand 
and they denied uh, that uh, request to show it to them. But Cleveland Clinic, uh, Walgreens, so many of the other partners that we have have seen our technology, they've worked with us, they've used our systems, and they understand what we're doing, and they understand that when you try to change things, uh, people react to it. All right, so let me get this straight. You offered to bring the test to the journal, so presumably you would have been comfortable with, say, 100 different people at the journal taking your, your test, matching them against Quest or LabCorp, and you were perfectly willing to have that happen. A absolutely. We offered to bring our devices to their offices. And what did they say as a reason why they didn't want to do that? Because the story needed to get out immediately. Well, let's talk about that. Even because though they'd been reporting on it. They said, uh, you know, again, because first of all, it's the Wall Street Journal. This is not uh, the National Enquirer here. Uh, but they did say that they, after uh, tried, they pursued you for an interview for, for five months. Uh, you uh, declined an interview request from the journal for more than five months. Last week, the company said she would be available, but her schedule didn't allow it before the publication of this article. Uh, why not just sit down with them? I mean, it's a reputable outfit. Why not just sit down with them months ago and, and explain your side of the story? Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the journal actually had a member of their editorial board write the very first piece on Theranos, and that person, Joe Rago, came out to our lab, saw our systems, and really got insight into our work. That was about a year ago. I published my op-ed in the journal, and um, unfortunately in this case, the reporter focused on sources who we knew in 2004 and 2005 who were the people who um, had said to me that there was no way I was going to succeed and be able to build this kind of company, and, and focused on uh, you know, questions like asking whether I could prove that I actually invented the patents that my name were on. And those are not very fruitful conversations in the context of engagement. But when we had the opportunity to engage with more people in the journal, we said we absolutely were ready to sit down and do that. And um, unfortunately, they offered a three-day window in which we had told them I was not available before it was uh, quote-unquote necessary to get this published. All right, well, let's talk about the substance uh, of some of the charges they raised. For instance, here's just, a, uh, just an outright sentence, uh, an assertion. Theranos also hasn't disclosed publicly that it does the vast majority of its tests with traditional machines bought from, the, from companies like Siemens AG. True or false? So this is taken completely out of context. Um, starting when we launched our services in 2013, we put on our website that we do venous testing. So blood draws from the arm the traditional way. And starting in 2015, we announced, and it was published in San Francisco paper in uh, Fortune. I talked about it in an interview I did with Forbes that we made a decision to expand our test menu to include all the specialty and esoteric tests that are traditionally run only very infrequently, but cost a huge amount of money. And we believe, as part of what we do, that one of our greatest innovations is making these tests available at extremely low cost. Okay. And so we expanded our test menu and made all these tests available through Venus Draws. We updated our website to reflect that. And so, yes, now we have a huge number of tests that are available through our lab but instead of charging $10,000 for them, we're charging $2.99. Okay. And this is listed on the Walgreens website. We've put it in our own press, and it's been out there. Well, how many tests can your device, Edison, do? The, the Wall Street Journal says it can only do 15 out of 240. Yes, yeah, so we had communicated to the Wall Street Journal that we have submitted over 130 pre-submissions to FDA with tests running on our proprietary devices. Um, and have been taking those through the FDA submission process. 
every test that we offer in our laboratory can run on our proprietary devices. We bring tests up on our proprietary devices based on the frequency with which they're run. So at any given point in time, uh, we're running the tests that are most commonly ordered. Um, but we've also done a lot of work as part of this commitment that we've made, and it's been very controversial that we've actually become the first company advocating for FDA regulation right. of lab-developed tests. And as part of that, we have said that we think that every lab-developed test really should go through the FDA submission process, and so we've been consistent with it. And in fact, we even just recently took our nanotainers uh -huh. through the FDA clearance process and sent submissions in for those. And as part of that process, we're not even using our nanotainers okay. except for FDA cleared assays um, so that every single thing that runs on our platform is getting to the point okay. that it's going to be FDA cleared. One last question. Uh, obviously, uh, there's some dispute here. The journal doesn't make stuff up. Why not just have the study of hundreds of people, Theranos versus Quest LabCorp? Just say, listen, we're willing to do it. We're willing to do it now as LabCorp is Quest. Corp. It, it, Quest. Just say it right now on air. Quest LabCorp, we want to do a head-to-head. -head. 200 Five, 200, 300, 400 patients. What is it? Yes? We, we, we've already done it. We've already done it. Absolutely. And it's actually even published in our FDA decision summary from this summer okay. from a 900-patient study where we got FDA clearance of the exact system that the journal is questioning and demonstrated venous versus finger stick across a huge number of patients. It was 889, I think, for that okay. test. And we've done that over and over again for every single test. Excellent. Elizabeth Holmes, founder, chair, and CEO of Theranos. Thank you for coming on Mad Money and from the, from the Harvard Med School. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. As you heard towards the end of that interview, Elizabeth said, we've also done a lot of work as a part of this commitment that we've made and it's been very controversial that we've actually become the first company advocating for FDA regulation of lab-developed tests. And as a part of that, we have said that we think that every lab-developed test really should go through the FDA submission process. So we've been consistent with it. In fact, we even just recently took our nanotainers through the FDA clearance process and sent submissions in for those as a part of that process. And we're not even using our nanotainers except for FDA cleared assays so that every single thing that runs on our platform is getting to the point that it's going to be FDA cleared. So Elizabeth took that recent FDA decision to ban them from using the nanotainer and their roundabout way of getting Theranos to stop conducting finger stick blood tests. And she spun it into something that they were doing on their own in order to comply with whatever it is the FDA needs them to do in order to move forward with the approval process. John was preparing a follow-up article for the next day where he was going to bring up the fact that Theranos had been ordered by the FDA during a surprise inspection that they were told to halt the use of the nanotainer and that they were subject to an upcoming visit by the CMS too. I don't know if Elizabeth knew that John was preparing a follow-up story. I'm pretty sure she had an inkling. But if she did, then here she is clearly trying to get her side of the story out there ahead of time. And the story this time was going to be on the main front page of the journal. And it made it clear the FDA forced Theranos to stop finger stick blood tests by finding the nanotainer to be a medical device that has not been approved. 
Theranos was officially in hot water, a big, huge pot of boiling, hot, scandalous water. As it turned out, Elizabeth was in Boston the day that John's article, his first article came out. She was at the Board of Fellows meeting at Harvard Medical School. And to that, I would have to say, you would think that you would need some kind of a degree or something of the sort to get invited to be on the Board of Fellows at Harvard Medical School, but whatever. This is one of those knowing people in high places types of situations, I can only guess. Elizabeth gave the Mad Money interview from Boston and didn't get back to California until the next day where she would be able to handle the scandal from there. A second press release was put out by Theranos, but it mostly just expressed their disappointment in the journal for getting things all twisted, and it continued to frame the nanotainer being shelved as voluntary. It was a proactive move on Theranos' part, they say. Later that day that she got back to California, Elizabeth summoned her underlings to the cafeteria for another one of her famous monologues, but there was a different vibe going on with her at that particular meeting on that afternoon. She was kind of a mess. Her hair was unkempt and she was kind of looking like someone had just spilled on all her deepest, darkest secrets, which was pretty much what was happening at the time. Elizabeth attempted to be disregardful of the journal while trying to keep up her bold, unshakable presence, but it was pretty obvious that she was shook. Elizabeth said that this is what happens when you make waves in an industry, and those who have been around for a long time would love nothing more than to see you fall flat on your face. She characterized the Wall Street Journal as nothing more than a glorified tabloid. It was then when Patrick O'Neill had something to say, and if you remember, he's the one who was the executive at Shyatt Day Advertising that helped Theranos revamp its website and its brand, and he ended up coming on board to work at Theranos. He wanted to know if Elizabeth was seriously considering going toe-to-toe with the Wall Street Journal, and Elizabeth said no. She was going toe-to-toe with John Carreyrou. She fielded a few more questions before Sonny led one of his famous FU chants, previously aimed at Quest Diagnostics and LabCorp, This time, it was directed at John. F.U. Carrie Rue, because that's clever. We've seen it depicted in the Hulu series. Elizabeth was not going to go down without a fight. That goes without saying. And remember, she was slated to speak at the Wall Street Journal's own tech conference the following week that was being held in Laguna Beach, California. Most thought that she would not show up. But she showed up. There were about 100 people in attendance. Each of them paid $5,000 to be there for the weekend-long event. John wanted to go, but because his wife was on jury duty, he was on kid duty. So he stayed in New York as Elizabeth made her much-anticipated appearance at the conference. This is what John said of what happened next. Holmes came out swinging. 
Almost from the start, that was no surprise. We had expected her to be combative. What we hadn't fully anticipated was her willingness to tell bald-faced lies in a public forum. Not just once, but again and again during the half-hour interview. In addition to continuing to insist the nanotainer withdrawal had been voluntary, she said the Edison devices referred to in my stories were an old technology that Theranos hadn't used in years. She also denied that the company had ever used commercial lab equipment for finger stick tests, and she claimed that the way Theranos conducted proficiency testing was not only perfectly legal, it had the express blessings of regulators. The biggest lie was her categorical denial that Theranos diluted finger stick samples before running them on commercial machines. She said, What the journal described, that we take a sample, dilute it, and put it onto a commercial analyzer, is inaccurate, and that is not what we do. In fact, I bet you, if you tried that, it wouldn't work, because it's just not possible to dilute a sample and put it into a commercial analyzer. I mean, there are so many things that are wrong with that. At the same time as John was watching this interview, he was receiving what the actual F text messages from Adam Rosendorf. They all knew damn well that diluting samples and running them through the modified Siemens Advia machine was exactly what they were doing. And Elizabeth was right. It wouldn't work because it doesn't work. And you can't do that if you wanted accurate results, but they did. And they just turned out jacked up results and jacked up data. During this interview at the conference, Elizabeth worked on discrediting all the supposed whistleblowing former employees by dismissing them as being dazed and confused. She characterized their anonymity as being akin to lacking credibility when we know that it is not only common practice in investigative journalism to keep, so to keep sources confidential, but it is necessary to keep everyone safe from Theranos's bullying tactics. Elizabeth fibbed more by saying one of the sources had only worked at Theranos for a couple of months back in 2005. To refresh, the three main whistleblowers that we've been talking about the most are Erica Chung, who worked at Theranos for seven months, from October of 2013 through April of 2014, Tyler Schultz, who worked at Theranos for eight months, from September of 2013 to April of 2014, and Adam Rosendorf, who worked at Theranos for one year and nine months, from April of 2013 through December of 2014. So those were all relatively recent times in terms of its proximity to the publication of John Kerry Roos' article. At the Wall Street Journal's own tech conference, Elizabeth Holmes straight up called the Wall Street Journal a tabloid. And much to Elizabeth's chagrin, there were some pretty well-known members in the Silicon Valley community who were also openly questioning Theranos. A former executive from Apple Incorporated had actually gone and had a blood test run at a wellness center and got back some whack-ass results, a gentleman named Jean-Louis Gasset. He blogged about his blood test results being weird, and he said that he contacted Theranos, but never heard back. This was brought up at the journal conference, at which point Elizabeth claimed that she didn't know about him, or his experience at Theranos, but would make sure to contact him to see what exactly went on with his test results. For all the other test results that John's article pointed out were off, 
in some instances way off. Elizabeth was dismissive of them all and that nobody could reach any conclusions based on a few atypical cases. That conference was on October 21st. That press release that I went over a little while ago in great detail, that came out the following day, October 22nd. It was really lengthy and it attempted to refute everything that John Carreyrou had written word for word. The journal's attorneys and such went over the whole thing, the whole press release, and found that nothing in it invalidated anything that John Carreyrou had written in his article, and it would stand as is, and the journal officially stated that they stand behind the reporting and the reporter. In the wake of the article and Elizabeth's appearance at the journal's tech conference, it caused Elizabeth to decide to shake up the board of directors a little bit and put at least one thicker-skinned individual on the board in place of all the elderly luminaries, such as Schultz, Nunn, and Kissinger. They were all given some sort of consolation position, like a board of Mr. Irrelevance. Except Elizabeth called it the board of counselors. Who would be filling their seats? None other than Super Attorney David Boyce himself. Apparently, he was going to fill all three seats. And from there, it was on. Theranos's attorney sent off a series of letters to the Wall Street Journal with their demands, retract many of the key points in John's October 15th and 16th articles that were full of libelous assertions, do not get rid of anything or destroy anything related to Theranos, including any official documents, emails, files, memos, faxes, voice messages, etc., etc., anything that's either on paper or electronic on any device or in any form or any medium. And Boyce is going around giving interviews stating that he sees a defamation lawsuit in the Wall Street Journal's future. So the journal began crossing their T's and dotting their I's and get ready to mix it up with Theranos in court. But now Theranos was actually picking on somebody their own size, possibly even bigger. The journal sold to Rupert Murdoch's News Corp in 2007 for $5 billion, putting an end to the 105-year-long ownership of the paper by the Bancroft family. But that was the journal's story, and they were sticking to it, lawsuit or no lawsuit. And they quadrupled down with four more articles about Theranos over the next several weeks. The news that they reported on included Walgreens' plans to put the brakes on going national with the wellness centers, that Theranos had attempted some shady insider trading nonsense, at least that's what it sounded like to me, when it was revealed that they were attempting to sell a whole bunch of Theranos stock at an inflated value just a couple of days before John's first article published, that the lab director, Dr. Sunil, was an unqualified dermatologist, and that Safeway had already abandoned their partnership with Theranos amidst doubts that the technology worked. A new demand to retract every story followed every article that John Carreyrou published. So how does someone like Elizabeth Holmes fight back against the withering allegations that Carreyrou kept piling on with each new article that he published? While well, in speaking with her closest confidants and advisors, Elizabeth felt like one of the best ways to attack back was to accuse Carrie Rue of being misogynistic in his reporting. 
and she would go on in subsequent magazine interviews to play the sexism in the tech industry card by pointing out that she really didn't know what it meant to be a woman in this arena until the journal began attacking her. That they don't come at the Facebook guy or the Google guys or the Snapchat guys the way they, that they've come at her. She even floated the idea of going public with the sexual assault that she survived back in 2003. Now, I'm not too keen on Elizabeth using her experience as a sympathy play or a manner of her attempting to deflect from the things that Theranos was being accused of. But it is something that she kept secret for a long time, and it is a part of her journey. And so there is that part of me that does believe it's her story to tell how she sees fit. Just not a big fan of the timing or the reasons behind it. Elizabeth was getting ready to cast herself as a victim. First, a victim of this sexual assault from a dozen years earlier. Now, a victim of John Carreyrou. And later on, she would portray herself as a victim of Sonny Belwani. According to NPR, the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department received a call on Sunday, October 5th, 2003, around 10 p.m., from a then 19-year-old Elizabeth to report that she had been sexually assaulted on the Stanford campus. She had already founded Theranos earlier in the year. It came out at her trial last fall when she took the stand, and she told the jurors that she was raped when she was at Stanford, and she spoke through her tears about how much it affected her and ultimately drove her to focus all of her energy on Theranos. And according to NPR, the sexual assault was not known publicly until the trial. They had put in a request for a copy of the report, but they were turned down because of a legal exemption. But NPR fought that ruling and ultimately obtained a copy. Sometime between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. on that Sunday, Elizabeth was assaulted, and it was many hours later that same day at 10 p.m. that authorities received a call about it. Deputies responded to the scene, took a report, but the details were not included in the documents that NPR were given. But it did say where the sexual assault took place, which was at the Sigma Chi Fraternity House, which has since been mired in controversy over student conduct, which I'll tell you a little more about in a moment. And like I said, it was the first time that Elizabeth spoke publicly of the sexual assault and the only other time that it had been brought up is when John Carreyrou said it in his book that Elizabeth had entertained the idea of going public with her story when his articles came out, but she actually never did. Her confidants, advisors, and whomever told her that it wasn't a good idea. And when it comes to that Sigma Chi frat house on Stanford's campus, Stanford had actually filed a lawsuit against the housing group that leased the Sigma Chai house and reached an agreement in May of 2021 in terms of what to do with the property through the end of the lease, which is up in 2023. Because you see, Sigma Chai's Stanford chapter was suspended back in May of 2018 after as many five members of the Pi Beta Phi sorority and two members of the men's rowing team reported that they think that they were drugged by a non-Stanford student visiting the rowing team. The agreement is to turn the property into university housing 
while Sigma Chi works on reinstatement. And they hope to be back in the house, which they want to have designated a historical landmark after all the years that Sigma Chi fraternity was housed there. So yeah, that's the location where Elizabeth was assaulted. No suspect or perpetrator was named in the sexual assault report. In the meantime, Channing Robertson, longtime Elizabeth superfan, stood by her in the wake of Carrie Rue's article and the torrent of bad press that it generated. Robertson was dismissive of anyone questioning Elizabeth. There's just no way, according to him, that Theranos could have launched their devices, knowingly putting people's lives in harm's way. That a genius like Elizabeth only comes around once every generation. And he held her up to the likes of Mozart, Einstein, Da Vinci. Less than a month after Carrie Rue's article, Glamour magazine named Elizabeth their Woman of the Year. She gave an impassioned speech, portraying herself as a role model for young girls and women, urging them to focus on science, math, engineering, and technology. Which I've said in the past, in past episodes, that that's one of the saddest things about this whole thing, was Elizabeth could have been that role model. She could have been somebody that young girls interested in math and science and engineering could look up to. And she just let everybody down. The only thing that John Carreyrou could see putting a stop to all of this madness was if the regulating bodies stepped in and shut her down. All right, dreamers, I did not think I was going to go past 12 episodes, yet here we are. There is just so much to that journal article and Theranos' attempt at rebutting everything. I have got to finish up this series. I am anxious to move on. I was discussing it in the Facebook group as I was recording this. I can't even believe we've been at this since the beginning of the year. I'm anxious to move on. So... I'm going to get onto the next installment as soon as possible. Don't forget to join the Facebook group. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're feeling generous, we could really use your help over at Patreon as well. I want to thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>